This term on Sunday mornings, we're in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In our first study, we did an introduction to the letter, which you can listen to online. If you didn't uh, uh, hear that, it might be a helpful way for you to navigate into the, the heart of this letter. And also in our church magazine Connect, which comes out this month, I've repeated that introduction in a shorter written form. This morning, we're going to begin uh, our study proper through the verses in the letter. And our passage is chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. And our title, Who We Are as Christians. Now let's read Ephesians 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. These verses have been described as amongst the most magnificent in the New Testament. We need God's help to understand them. We also need God's help to feel them, to experience their impact on our minds and hearts. These verses should lead us to love the Lord Jesus more. I want us to pray in line with Paul's prayer that follows these verses. So let's do that. Let us pray. Our Father, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, will you give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus, that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us, that we may understand the riches of the glorious inheritance that is ours in Christ, 
that we may grasp the immeasurable greatness of Jesus' power toward us who believe. For Jesus' sake. Amen. I have in mind three groups of people listening to this talk on these verses, either sitting in this room or perhaps listening online. The first group is Christians. And what Paul writes here will resonate with what you know and what you have experienced in your life. And being reminded of these things will strengthen and encourage you. Ephesians is a letter written to Christians to encourage them when they are feeling up against it. And that will be the case for some of us listening. And very practically, when you go to work tomorrow, when you go to school or lectures, when you're doing the stuff of day-to-day life, which can often be discouraging or relentless or simply mundane, remember who you are as Christians. Remember the blessings you have in Christ. The second group of people who will be listening are those who are not sure if they are Christians. You might put yourself in that category. You're just not sure if you're a Christian. Now Paul's description here of who a Christian is, and this is one of the clearest descriptions in the New Testament of who a Christian is, will help you answer that question. And there could be no more important question. Am I really a Christian? It is possible that you've never questioned if you're a Christian. You've always just assumed you are, or others have always just assumed you are. It's what you have always done. Always gone to church. Always been around Christians. Always been in that kind of Christian culture or community. Perhaps you've grown up in a Christian home. And it might just be that as we consider what Paul says about what a real Christian is, it might just be that that will ask searching questions about where you really stand with God. It might be for somebody listening that Paul's description of what a Christian is comes as a shock when they realise that they are not a Christian. Now, such a realisation is shocking. But what a wonderful thing it is. If you think you are a Christian or others think you are a Christian and you discover under the teaching of God's Spirit that you're not, what a wonderful thing that is. That your eyes have been opened. That you know where you stand before God. And then you can become a Christian. The third group of people who will be listening are people who are sure they are not Christians. For example, you may be someone who has investigated Christianity, considered it and said, no, not for me. But you're still here. You're still listening. 
Or you may be at the beginning of investigating Christianity. You may want to believe but just can't or haven't yet. There's something stopping you or blocking you. Maybe in the next 30 minutes, as you consider what Paul says a real Christian is, maybe the Holy Spirit will take away that block. And whatever it is that is stopping you believing will go. So these, I think, are the three groups of people listening. Christians, people who are not sure if they are Christians, and people who know they are not Christians. Which group would you put yourself in? And of course, as I've alluded to, the exciting thing is that as we consider what a Christian is, as we understand the gospel explained in these verses, who we are at this moment in relation to God might change. You might become a Christian and you can become a Christian at any time. And I hope with all my heart that you do become a Christian if you're not. Now verse 3, which I've summarised on the sheet as every spiritual blessing in Christ, is like a title or heading for everything that follows in verses 4 to 14. Let's read verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now I want to focus on two key phrases in this verse. Here's the first. Every spiritual blessing. A Christian is somebody who has every spiritual blessing. What God has given us as Christians is lavish. He hasn't blessed us a little bit. He has blessed us in a lavish, extravagant, overflowing way. That's the tenor of the language Paul uses in these verses. The end of verse 7, the beginning of verse 8. The riches of his grace which he has lavished upon us. God is not in any sense mean-spirited with us. He is quite the opposite. And when Paul says that the Christian has every spiritual blessing, he means every spiritual blessing. Now I can almost hear you thinking or hear myself thinking, does he really mean that? He does. There's nothing you lack. If the Lord is my shepherd... I lack nothing. I have everything I need. Moreover, as Christians, we have every spiritual blessing right from the start, right from the moment we believe. Look at verse 13. In him, Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. When did you receive the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, 
when you believed in him. And it's when you receive the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, that you grant every spiritual blessing. And so as you sit here as a Christian, or as you listen to this sermon as a Christian, you have every spiritual blessing. There is no blessing that you haven't got. And if anyone says to you as a Christian, or gives you the impression that there is a kind of higher order of Christian experience or blessing that you haven't got, that is not true. You have every spiritual blessing when you believe. Let me come at this in a slightly different way. Let me say this. Every Christian has every spiritual blessing. Or every Christian is equally blessed in Jesus. So within a church family, every Christian is equally blessed. There are no special Christians. There are no specially blessed Christians. Now you might feel in life, say your working life or professional life or whatever, that everyone is better than you. People keep getting promoted above you. Now that may be true and discouraging, but in your Christian life, no one is ever or has ever been promoted above you. And on the other side of that coin in the Christian life, you are not promoted above anyone else. Every Christian has every spiritual blessing. Every Christian is equally blessed. Every Christian is the recipient of the lavish grace and generosity of God. And as we'll see, this will be an important and recurring theme for Paul through the letter. Paul will address Christians who, who believe in some way or some form they are second rank or second class Christians. And Paul wants to assure them, as he wants to assure us all, that every Christian is equally blessed and has every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, The second phrase I want to highlight in verse 3 are these two words, in Christ. Now that little phrase in Christ is such an important phrase in the New Testament. It means two things. In the first place, that all the spiritual blessings we have as Christians are in Christ in the sense that they are connected to Christ, to who he is and to what he has done. For example, verse 7, where Paul speaks about our redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, he writes, in him, Jesus, we have redemption through his Jesus' blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of Jesus' grace. And what Paul is saying is that we are redeemed and forgiven because of Jesus' death on the cross. Every spiritual blessing we have has its roots, its basis in Christ. Everything is connected to Christ. And the Lord Jesus figures right through these verses, the repetition of phrases like in Christ, in him, and so on. But the phrase in Christ means something else. In the second place, in Christ is the most common phrase Paul uses in his writing throughout the New Testament to describe the Christian. 
The Christian is somebody who is in Christ, literally united with Christ. Being a Christian is not believing a set of propositions, doctrines or truths. It is being one with Christ, physically united with him through the indwelling spirit. You see, it's not that we walk through life with Christ beside us. It is that we walk through life with Christ inside us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Becoming a Christian is becoming a new person. Now that's verse 3, this kind of introductory headline verse that uh, sits at the top of all these verses that follow. And Paul has made some really important points for our encouragement. Every single Christian has every spiritual blessing in Christ. There's nothing you do not have. There's nothing that some other Christian has that is elusive to you. And all these blessings are connected to Christ. All of them come from him. And if you are a Christian, you are in Christ. Jesus indwells you by his Holy Spirit. And all the blessings that are connected to Christ are yours because you are united with Christ. You are united in Christ. Christ is in you. You do not walk through life with Christ beside you. You walk through life with Christ inside you. Now verses 4 to 14 describe for us what these blessings are. First, verses 4 to 6, chosen for adoption. Let's read verses 4 to 6 again. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. If you are a Christian, God has chosen you to be a Christian before the foundation of the world. Now that same point is made in verse 5. God predestined us, chose us, and in case we missed it, it's there again in verse 11. Now this gives rise to all sorts of questions that we simply cannot answer. Now that may sound like a cop-out, but I assure you it's not. We have to accept that there are mysteries in the Christian life that we cannot understand. We have to accept that our finite minds with our finite capacity cannot grasp the infinite mind of God. What we can see 
to the fact that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world is that God is absolutely sovereign, both in terms of his knowledge of what will be and in his divine right to choose. That when somebody becomes a Christian, the initiative is God's. You have not chosen me, I have chosen you. Yes, God gives us human responsibility to repent and believe, but in the fusion of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, ultimately God is sovereign and takes the initiative. In the first and last analysis, if God is God, he must be sovereign and he is. People use this illustration. You may have heard it before. You hear the word of truth. You hear the gospel. You hear the invitation to come to Jesus. And the words come to me are written as it were above a door that you are standing in front of. And that door is the way of salvation. You hear the gospel. You hear that invitation to come. And you walk through the door in response to that call. And then once you are through the door you look back and you see written above the other side of the door the words chosen in him before the foundation of the world. But what is the most important thing we can see? In light of this truth that God has predestined us, God has chosen us, as we sit here as Christians before the foundation even of this world, what is the right thing to say? What is the right response of our hearts? Surely it is that of the Apostle himself, the greatest mind perhaps the church has ever had. What does he say? To the praise of his glorious grace. As you sit here as a Christian, as you listen as a Christian, as I preach this as a Christian, and we think on the fact that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world, does that not enlarge our vision of the majesty and the sovereignty of God? And when we think on the fact that God has chosen us not because we are worthy, does that not enlarge our vision of the grace and mercy and tenderness of God to the praise of his glorious grace? If you are not yet a Christian but are sensing God's call in your life, then if you're seeing that door in front of you with the words come to Jesus written on it, then come through that door, the way of salvation, and look back and see these words chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Now, it might be that you are sitting here thinking this is unfair and and for us all questions like that are not analytical or theoretical they are personal and pastoral 
conscience that these I'm conscious that these questions are really hypothetical. They are personal about people we love, people we would love to see come to faith. Now we need to pray for them, tell them the gospel, but ultimately we need to entrust them to God's sovereignty. Now what has God chosen us for? two things. First, the second half of verse 4, that we should be holy and blameless before him. But that's not true, because I'm not. You're not. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters. Yes, you are. You are holy and blameless before God, because you have received through faith the righteousness of Christ. He died bearing your sin, so that you might receive his righteousness. God looks at you and before him you are holy and blameless before him. How do you respond to that? To the praise of his glorious grace that in the eyes of God he has not only chosen you before the foundation of the world but he has presented you holy and blameless before him because of what Christ has done. God has chosen us that we should be holy and blameless before him. That is the first thing God has chosen us for. The second verse 5, he predestined us or chose us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now this is wonderful, wonderful stuff. You have been adopted as a son of God through Jesus Christ, the son of God. And that's a wonderful privilege to be part of the family of God, to call God father, to call Jesus brother. Now the fact that we are adopted as sons of God is significant. We're all sons of God, whether we're uh, male or female in this sense. Son conveys our relationship to the Son, God's Son, Jesus Christ, and sonship embodies the rights to inheritance. And so in that sense, all Christians are sons of God. One of the most precious things about our adoption as sons is access to God. Intimate access to our Heavenly Father. There's a picture, some of you may have seen it, of uh, John F. Kennedy, JFK, sitting at his desk, the resolute desk in the Oval uh, Office. And there he is, the President of the United States. And underneath the desk, underneath his feet, his little boy is playing. Now, that little boy had access to the most powerful person in the world in a room that stands for the place of power in the world. That little boy had access because the president was his father. And as the picture depicts that little boy playing at his father's feet, his father is still the president. His father is still the most powerful man on the earth. As Christians, we have that kind of intimate access to Almighty God. Every single moment, we have access to him in prayer every single moment of our lives we can as it were come into the presence of God 
not in the Oval Office sitting behind his resolute desk, but in the glory of glories where his son sits enthroned above the earth as King of kings and Lord of lords, we can come into the presence of his majesty because we are his children. Now this whole theme of being chosen for adoption as sons merits an in-depth study way beyond what we can achieve in these very few minutes. I wonder if I can recommend a book to you, Jim Packer's book, Knowing God. It is a classic book and contains a wonderful chapter entitled Sons of God. Let me read to you the last page or so of that chapter. To help us realise, Packer writes, more adequately who and what as children of God we are and are called to be, here are some questions by which we do well to examine ourselves again and again. Do I understand my adoption? Do I value it? Do I daily remind myself of my privilege as a child of God? Have I sought full assurance of my adoption? Do I daily dwell on the love of God to me? Do I treat God as my Father in heaven, loving, honouring and obeying him, seeking and welcoming his fellowship, and trying in everything to please him as human parents would want their child to do? Do I think of Jesus Christ, my Saviour and as my Lord, as my brother too, bearing to me not only a divine authority but also a divine human sympathy. Do I think daily how close he is to me, how completely he understands me, and how much, as my kinsman redeemer, he cares for me? Have I learned to hate the things that displease my father? Am I sensitive to the evil things to which he is sensitive? Do I make a point of avoiding them lest I grieve him? And do I look forward daily to that great family occasion when the children of God will finally gather in heaven before the throne of God their Father and of the Lamb their brother and their Lord? Have I felt the thrill of that hope? And do I love my Christian brothers and sisters? with whom I live day by day, in a way that I shall not be ashamed of when in heaven I think back over it. Am I proud of my father and of his family, to which by his grace I belong? Does the family likeness appear in me? If not, why not? God humble us, God instruct us, God make us his own true and dear children. Chosen for adoption. Now the second spiritual blessing, verses 7 and 8, redeemed by Christ's blood. Let's read these verses again. In him, Jesus 
we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses or sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Now that word redemption is a big Bible word. It has a big significance. It recalls the events of the Exodus when God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and brought them to the promised land. And Paul is looking back to that. But he's saying that something bigger has happened to you. As a Christian, you have been rescued from slavery to sin. And the price, the cost of that rescue, is the blood and the death of Jesus. That's the price that had to be paid. Now, the forgiveness of our sins is a huge deal. It cost God a great deal to do it, the death of his son. And to have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, means a complete transfer in my life from condemnation to no condemnation, from everlasting judgment to everlasting life, from hell to heaven. It is a huge deal to have your sins forgiven once and for all. And the most wonderful thing is that we can have complete assurance of forgiveness right now as we sit here or listen because that forgiveness comes out of the riches of his grace. We are forgiven entirely by what he has done for us, the death of Jesus. We merit nothing. We contribute nothing. It is entirely according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. Let me ask you this question. Have you grasped this? If you have never really understood the forgiveness of sins as it is described in the Bible, the terrible state we are in without forgiveness, the depth of love that God gave his son that we might be forgiven. How we have been rescued from wrath and everlasting judgment to be recipients of mercy and everlasting life. Have you felt the weight of sin? Have you felt the joy of forgiveness? If you haven't, then I'd venture to suggest that you do not know God. Now, just as I say that, I'm conscious in my mind that the Spirit of God, who is our teacher, may have just convicted someone in their heart that they're not forgiven. 
because they've never come to the Lord Jesus with that deep sense of repentance and condition, desperate for the forgiveness that sets them right with God. If that is you, then come now. Come to the cross. Come to Christ. And receive the full assurance of forgiveness that comes through the death of Christ. And feel that translation in your life from condemnation to no condemnation. From everlasting judgment to everlasting life. From the fearful prospect of hell to the glorious inheritance of heaven. Chosen for adoption. Redeemed by Christ's blood. And therefore part of God's plan. Verses 9 and 10. Making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in him. Things in heaven. And things on earth. Why has God chosen us? Why has he redeemed us? Because he has a plan to unite all things in Christ. And that plan will be fulfilled in the fullness of time in the new creation. After this world has passed away. The new creation, the new heavens and the new earth will be a place of perfect order and unity. Where God's people through all of history will live with Jesus for eternity. That is God's plan. And if you have been chosen for adoption and redeemed by Christ's blood, you are part of God's plan. You are caught up in something that is far bigger than you can imagine. You are part of God's plan to unite all things in Christ. And you are part of that uniting. Christianity is not something we do in life. It is not a lifestyle choice. It runs to all eternity. It is to be caught up in the purposes of Almighty God. Now, that is wonderful enough. But even more wonderful is that you are not alone. Our focus today is on who we are as Christians. And it is very important that as individuals we are clear on who we are as Christians. But we are not chosen and redeemed to be alone. We are chosen to be part of a family of Christians that stretches through history and stretches across the world. Every nation and every language. And the churches that we are in. What is a church? A church is the prototype of eternity on earth, where all things are united in him. Who are we? We are men and women, united in Christ. Now here's a question for you to consider and pray about yourself as a Christian. If you are part of God's plan for the world, to bring all things in its fullness to unity in him and a new creation, And that means, above all else, men and women across this world reconciled to God, being part, being caught up in God's plan. If you are part of that already, then let me ask you this. What are you doing to further God's plan? Are you willing 
to be used. Being chosen for adoption and part of God's plan means, fourthly, that we are heirs of a glorious inheritance. Verses 11 and 12. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Some of you might be heirs of an inheritance, but nothing like this. Every Christian is an heir of an inheritance that cannot be valued, a glorious inheritance, co-heirs with the Son of God of his inheritance, the new creation where we will live and reign with him for all eternity. And then finally, number five, sealed with the Holy Spirit, verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, I've already spoken about the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Spirit of Jesus that is ours when we become Christians. And that Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance in the new creation. And in light of what he has said in the previous verses 11 and 12, that is the specific focus here. But Paul has something much bigger in his mind. And that is how the Holy Spirit gives us reassurance that we are Christians, that we have received every blessing in Christ. Now, what is the evidence that the Holy Spirit is indwelling you? How do you know that the Spirit of the living Christ lives inside you. One, he opens our eyes to the reality of God. If, as I have preached this sermon, you are seeing something of the reality of God, that is not me explaining it to you. It is the Holy Spirit opening your eyes to the reality of God. If the Holy Spirit was not living in you, you'd be blind to see that reality. Two, the Holy Spirit helps us, and sometimes in a painful way, to see why we need him, why we need our sins to be forgiven. Three, the Holy Spirit enables us to trust Jesus as Saviour and Lord. We cannot trust Jesus Christ as Lord without the Holy Spirit helping us to do that. Now maybe you are one of these people I was mentioning at the beginning of the sermon who is perhaps coming to terms with the fact that they're not a Christian and you feel in all your heart under the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you are wanting to trust Jesus. Well do so. But what will enable you and what is going on in your heart and mind at this moment is not the persuasion of a preacher to do it, but the persuasion of the Holy Spirit who not only persuades you, but helps you. So believe. The Holy Spirit makes the Bible a new book to us and gives us understanding. The Holy Spirit, as it well, blows the dust off our Bibles. The Holy Spirit activates our conscience. And that really strikes you when you become a Christian. The the conscience that lay dormant for many years suddenly comes alive. The Holy Spirit helps us to pray. 
The Holy Spirit helps us to know God as Father, that closeness. The Holy Spirit fashions in us godly character. Sometimes that can mean a real struggle, but it's a struggle that we never used to have. The Holy Spirit gives us a new love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. The Holy Spirit gives us an inward assurance of God. And and, and above all else, the Holy Spirit, and you know this if you sing wonderful hymns or wonderful psalms, the Holy Spirit whispers or sings in your soul that Jesus is mine. That you belong to me. Jesus says who we are as Christians. A Christian has every spiritual blessing in Christ. Chosen for adoption. Redeemed by Christ's blood. Part of God's plan. Heirs of a glorious inheritance. Sealed with the Holy Spirit. At the beginning of the sermon, I suggested three groups of people who might be listening. Christians, people who are not sure if they are Christians, and people who know they are not. Now, having considered what a Christian is, let me ask that question I asked at the beginning again. Are you a Christian? If you are a Christian then your heart will be singing to the praise of his glorious grace. If you're not a Christian, then Jesus says to you, come, come to me and become a Christian. Come to me and become an adopted son of God, come to me for redemption by my blood. Come and be caught up in God's cosmic plan. Come and be an heir of this glorious inheritance. Come, and I will give you my Holy Spirit as a seal, as a guarantee. Let me finish with verse 13 again. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Is that happening to someone right now? Well, let me pray with you. If it's you, our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that if there is somebody listening who is sensing that irresistible call of God, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, to put their faith and trust in Jesus as Saviour and Lord, that you would help them to trust and believe. Flood their hearts, Lord, with the wonderful assurance of forgiveness, adoption.
caught up in this wonderful plan. Heirs of a glorious inheritance. Sealed with the Holy Spirit. And Lord, in these first seconds of a new Christian's life. And for those of us who have been Christians for a year or five years or many, many years. And our response is simply this, to the praise of your glorious grace. For Christ's sake. Amen.